0: Well, this morning we meet a dad who bore sons and who lost sons, three sons, then one son, then twin sons. This morning we meet a father-in-law of scandal, disobedient, dishonest, and immoral. This morning we meet a son of the most famous of names. You know them, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This morning we meet a brother of ten traitors, a brother to one betrayed, and this morning we meet a friend to one slippery fellow in particular. You can draw your own conclusions. Well, this morning we meet a man named Judah. And not just the story of a man this morning do we visit, but we visit the person of God. If you're just joining us, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. We're exploring the major figures, the patriarchs, but not for the sake of stories alone, but for the sake of God. We are seeing the person of God through these people of God. This morning we will see three applications of God's mercy In the life of Judah, this would be a mercy that we find for Judah, but Lord willing, a mercy we find for ourselves also. Mercy is God's compassion towards those in need. We have need. You and I are born sinners, we're born destined for hell. We need God to be a God of mercy to step in and offer us rescue. Well, God did that. God gives us mercy in Jesus. We continue to live then in a fallen world. You and I will have many sins and many struggles in this life. Well, God supplies us mercy. He reaches down to us to give us mercy. We say His mercies are new every morning. Now, last week, we discussed grace. Mercy and grace, those words are often used um, similarly, but they do have their differences. They are distinct concepts. Mercy meets a need. For mercy to to, to exist, there needs to be some kind of distress or or some need that pre-exists it. I like the way John Feinberg illustrates this concept of mercy and grace. He writes, if I'm in a giving mood, I might find someone and write him or her a check for $1,000. Suppose that recipient is very wealthy and and doesn't need what I give. Still, the, the recipient has done nothing to merit my generosity, so my gift is an act of grace. On the other hand, suppose I'm in a generous mood, and I go to a part of town where the homeless live. I find someone whose clothes are tattered and torn, who has had little to eat for several days. Well, in this case, I write him a check for $1,000. It's also a good act that he doesn't deserve, but I do it because I take pity on his situation. My generosity to the man of great means is an act of grace. My generosity to the homeless person is an act of mercy. I like that helpful illustration the best news is that God is both a God of mercy and a God of grace that's good because you and I need both we need God's grace and we need God's mercy we need it both for the condition of our souls for all of eternity but we need it daily practically for living well we will see both elements as we turn to Genesis chapter 38 this morning mercy and grace our focus will be on mercy. The mercy of God, beginning in verse 1. I want us to see God's mercy toward sinners. As we begin, we need to start at the beginning. We are sinners in need of God's mercy, and God shows us His mercy in Judah's life. Genesis 38 is going to illustrate just the depth of need that we have. I think as believers, we have some sense of our sinfulness. We've come to that conclusion. But to really plumb the depth of that, I'm not sure we've quite done that. We No one really touches the bottom of this. So we're going to see, see this in Genesis 38. We'll at least get a sense of it again. And it's going to be a bit of an odd story to let you know up front. And if the story here isn't strange enough, its location is also a bit odd. Again, keep in mind, this is a story from the life of Judah, but it falls at a place, it lands in the story of Joseph. Now, we're going to see God's wisdom in the life of Joseph next week. In chapter 37, he's the favorite son of Jacob. You might know his story. Joseph dreams dreams. He probably talks a bit much. And his brothers want to kill him. But Judah, Judah sees dollar signs. He sees opportunity here, and he suggests a trade. So in an effort to rid themselves of Joseph, they sell him to foreign traders for 20 shekels of silver. But there's more to say about Judah than just that, and it falls in the midst of this Joseph story. The last verse of chapter 37 The Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now fast forward over to the first verse of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. It's almost as though... The editor did not get the memo that this is the account of Joseph, and they accidentally slipped this account in here, this account of Judah between chapter 37 and chapter 39. What is this story of Judah doing here? Well, first of all, it makes sense chronologically that it would be here. The events that we will read of fall between Joseph's sale to these traders and the eventual move of Jacob and his family to Egypt. All kinds of things transpire in Joseph's life between these two events. But for now, we see how things went in the life of his brother, Judah. It's also been suggested that this reveals why Egyptian slavery is necessary. Eventually, Israel will move to Egypt and become enslaved. And we learn in Genesis 38 that if this nation of Israel continue to do the things they're doing here, they will no longer be Israelites, but eventually Canaanites. They'll become just like the people around them in their practices, in their culture, and their religion. Yet, God is merciful, and He's going to grow His people despite His people. I give to you Exhibit A, Judah. Now, we met Judah last time, at least sort of. Two of his brothers, Simeon and Levi, last week, they returned for murdering all the, all the men of Shechem. Jacob's sons then looted the city. We should assume that that included Judah. But he now strikes out on his own, directly into the land of Canaan. Genesis 38, verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Well, Judah marries and has children. Judah finds a wife. Where? Among the Canaanites. We don't know her name. He meets her via a friend named Hira. Verse one describes him as an Adulamite. That means he lived in the Canaanite town of Adullam. And that he took his wife from among the Canaanites, that ought to be a flashing red light for us. This is not good. The Canaanites draw God's people away from God. But things look promising. God gives him three sons. We've seen God already bless the line of Abraham. There's great prospects here. And as was the custom, you read it, you heard it, Judah arranged for a marriage for his firstborn to a Canaanite. It's worth mentioning here that both Abraham and Isaac strongly warned their sons against this. So, what was married life like? Verse 7. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. To the average neighbor, this looks like a situation where you're woman next door is a black widow. But we're told here, behind the scenes, there's more to the story. God kills Ur. He's the firstborn of Judah, husband of Tamar. We don't know exactly what he did, or for that matter, we don't know what type of man that he was. His description in verse 7, evil in the sight of the Lord, it's used in the book of Deuteronomy, and it means all kinds of illicit things. It's tough to pinpoint. So Judah turns to Onan is second born. Verse 8 describes what is called a, a Leverite marriage. And some identify that there's actually no marriage involved here, which is no compliment to Judah. But Deuteronomy 25 will eventually fill this in. It becomes a tradition or a custom among the Hebrew people. Listen to one commentator describe this law for marriage. The law states that if brothers live together, and one of them is married but dies without children, one of the surviving brothers is to marry or take her as a wife and father a child with her. The child born of this Leverite relationship carries on the name of his deceased father and eventually inherits the family estate. The brother-in-law can apparently decline this obligation, but not without having to endure public humiliation and disgrace. The widow with whom he is supposed to have intercourse removes his shoe and spits in his face. <clears throat> well, Onan had his own way of declining, and God kills Onan. Verse 10, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. You just imagine Judah's third son, Shelah, sitting at dinner with dad. Shaking his head, no. You heard in the text that Judah also remains a big skeptical of this whole thing. He doesn't want to lose a third son. <clears throat> if you look down at verse 11, you'll read his concern. I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. <clears throat> and Judah's not giving him to Tamar. So Judah sends Tamar home. Verse 11, by the way, equates to a betrothal. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But for now, God's killed two sons, and Tamar remains without children and without a husband. Tamar grows restless. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, she was daughter. The wife of Judah died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar. Behold, your father-in-law was going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now. Let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed, and removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. Well, Tamar becomes pregnant by Judah. And I think we do well to pump the brakes here on assigning blame. We need to see that both Judah and Tamar are both victims and culprits. We know that Judah did not give her his third son, Sheila, as he had promised. Tamar's pulling the calendar pages off the wall one at a time, but still there's no knock at the door. In verse 14, Sheila's all grown up, but still no knock. Either Judah forgot, or Judah deceived, and we know that the gene of deception swims in his pool. Well, Tamar plots deception. And her deception is dependent upon the right timing and the right presentation. Judah's now single, maybe more vulnerable to this type of ploy. You see who's traveling with Judah in verse 12? Hira the Adulamite. I'm not blaming him, but bad things always happen when this guy's around. I can't help but read this account and picture Gollum when I read his name. Well, it's sheep shearing season, so Judah's traveling, and he's on a journey to manage his business. Tamar changes clothes. Many women wore veils, but verse 14 emphasizes her change. Verse 15 he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. But her location also mattered. Harlotry wasn't random. Proverbs 8, verse 3, beside the gates, at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, there she cries out. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 14, she sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city. This is an ancient Near East red light district. Well, they determine a price, Judah promises a goat, perhaps that's a generous offer in the time. She accepts, but only a pledge is needed. She suggests Judah's seal and his cord and his staff. A seal would be a very unique marker. In this case, it's, it's a, a ring. This is something, if you could imagine, a hot wax on an envelope. You might press your seal into it, that type of a ring seal. If the cord possibly suspended the seal. Perhaps you could wear it. And the staff might even bear the inscription of his name. And Tamar doesn't want them as a pledge. She wants them as proof. Essentially, she's asking for a social security card and a driver's license in his wallet. Rien Gollum, I mean Hira. Verse twenty calls him Judah's friend. He has the young goat. He's looking for the veiled woman. Verse 21, he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enom? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. You see, if word got out that this harlot had outwitted him, it would be extremely embarrassing. After all, he tried to settle up, right? But then, an unexpected rumor comes to his door. In verse 24, it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child By harlotry. Tamar is pregnant? She's betrothed to the son of Judah. What manner of wickedness is this? Judah said, bring her out here and let her be burned. She was paid for her sin. And verse 25, it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. What did Judah feel when his eyes saw those objects? Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as much as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. Now, we may not like the custom, this idea of the Leverite marriage. We may not like, not like these tactics. Judah withheld Shelah. Tamar wooed Judah. But we must like his confession. I mean, we're looking for something to like in this chapter. God grants mercy to the repentant. And God is at work in the lives of the people in this mess. Verse 27, it came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. The exact words used of Jacob and Esau a few weeks back. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and he was named Zerah. Now, in Hebrew custom, the firstborn mattered. This was a huge deal to be the firstborn. And again, in the book of Genesis, we see these twins. They're duking it out from the moment of birth. Zara's firstborn, Perez will overcome him. The younger usurps the older. So what do we say about a chapter like this? Let me give you one commentator's view. It's a short sentence. The commentator's name is Matthew, writing underneath the direction of the Holy Spirit. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by by Tamar. Now, that little verse may not mean a lot to you, spoken alone, but you need to keep reading that chapter, Matthew chapter 1. That's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two leading figures of chapter 38... The twin sons, they produced an immorality. What do we say about chapter 38? God is merciful. And let me tell you the question this morning is not, will God be merciful or do I have sin? But what will I do about my sin before this merciful God? Do we confess our sin? Not did, but do. Have we graduated away from that? Have we been Christians for so long that we no longer have need of that? Do we no longer feel the need that we have for the mercy of God in our lives? It's very tempting to look at chapter 38 and to condemn the deeds done by the people here Judah's lying and cheating, his lust and his greed. <laughs> Eir and Onan, his sons—they're evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, they had to be pretty bad guys if God killed them, right? Tamar is deceitful and scheming, and Hira the Edulamite—being shady isn't a sin, but he's Canaanite through and through. It's easy to see their sin and just to spurn it, but their sin does not diminish ours. It proves it. You and I—we're cut from the same cloth as these people. We all descended from Adam. You can read his bio. We all descended from Noah. You can read his bio. We are all born imperfect with a sin nature. And we may not like the sin that they do, but we have our own. And based on the Bible's evaluation of our hearts, we could slide into the sins of these characters with little training. We need the mercy of God. God is willing to give it. To everyone who seeks him in the person of Jesus Christ, God grants mercy to sin, and he offers mercy to save. I want to jump over to Genesis chapter 49 to continue this discussion on this person of Judah, to see the mercy of God in his life. Again, there's an important event in the life of Judah that puts God's mercy on display. God has a mercy towards sinners. And secondly, God has a mercy to save. God has a mercy to save. In Genesis 49, we find Judah's father, Jacob. He's in his final moments. He's the father of Judah, and his 11 brothers are there as well. And in this chapter, Jacob's going to bestow both blessings and cursings upon his sons. Each of these sons will go on to produce a tribe. They comprise the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. If you read this chapter, and then you read the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to find that everything Jacob pronounces comes true. And God, in in his will and in his wisdom, has ordained at this point in Hebrew history that the behavior of this one person is going to impact his descendants. And he's going to use the words of Jacob here to advance his sovereign plan for his elect people. In verse 2, Jacob's going to pass over the firstborn. It's a big deal. Remember, being firstborn meant birthright, meant blessing. But Reuben disqualified himself from the blessing because of incest. In verse 5, sons number 2 and number 3, they're also passed over. Simeon and Levi. Remember their deeds last week? They're disqualified. But look at verse 8. Jacob now turns to Judah. And he delivers a blessing. That's right. He delivers a blessing to Judah, the Judah of chapter 38. But why a blessing? Why mercy on Judah? Certainly there are better choices for God than guys like Judah. I believe that God has mercy on Judah for at least two different reasons. I believe that he chooses Judah in the way that he does because first, Romans chapter 9, verse 15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Frankly, all of the sons are sinners. Judah and the whole lot of them they all looted Shechem together, and they all sold Joseph together. But God sets his mercy on whomever he chooses. That's his right. Secondly, Judah seems to have displayed the heart of a man who's been changed by God. Remember, when Tamar handed him his seal and his cord and, and, and his staff, he seemed broken. He seemed repentant. The text was careful to let us know that he didn't commit that sin again. In fact, in a moment, we're going to see Judah speak up on behalf of other people to be a vessel of mercy on behalf of others. And in verse 8 of 49, chapter 49, God spoke through Judah. Excuse me, God spoke through Jacob. He says in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Judah will be preeminent. The tribe of Judah will rise above all of the other tribes. In fact, the golden era of Israel took place under a descendant of Judah, a man named King David. The city of Jerusalem, this religious and political center, lies in the, the, the territory given to the tribe of Judah. And Judah will be powerful. He speaks of the imagery of a lion. It captures the power of Judah. The, the lion hunts his prey and he, he, he pounces, he devours it in his lair. Not even when he naps does one disturb him. And this image of a scepter, that, that communicates to us kingship. It looks into the future to the reign of King David and then to the other kings to one king ultimately. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And Judah will prosper. This oracle speaks of a phenomenal harvest. It speaks of the choicest wine and the finest milk. So abundant, and so wealthy will he be. God will establish these things through Judah. God gives mercy to save sinners. And someone has come from the line of Judah, someone who's preeminent. The Bible calls him the Prince of Peace. And someone's come through the line of Judah, someone prosperous. The Bible calls him the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And someone's come through the line of Judah. The Bible calls him the Lion and the tribe of Judah. And his name is Jesus. The Bible says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And a man named Paul would eventually write, among whom I am the foremost of all. And Paul hated Christianity. And Paul wanted nothing to do with it. But what did Jesus offer him? You know this. It's the word of the day. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for all who would believe in him for eternal life. To restate it, Paul says, if Jesus can save me, he can save you. If he's perfectly patient with me, he's perfectly patient with you. Paul understood the mercy of God. And if you see this morning also, That you have sin. The mercy of God belongs to you. Believe upon Jesus. Turn from your sin and and be saved. Be redeemed by Jesus. God grants a mercy towards sinners. And He offers a a mercy to save. And God gives, lastly, a mercy to share. It's our final point this morning. It comes to us from the life of Judah. God dispenses mercy through his people. Well, if we're looking at the mercy of God through the life of Judah, I want to see just this last aspect to it. It again happens in the account of the life of Joseph. We'll see him next week, as I mentioned. His story goes from Genesis 37 all the way to 50. But Judah plays a role in his life, an important role. In Genesis 43, verse 1, we'll see that. A famine will drive... Judah and his brothers down to Egypt. Egypt had food. The promised land had little. And Joseph, this brother that they sold, has risen to become second in command in all the land. And Jacob's family is coming back on a second trip for more grain, but not so fast. Because where they go is no neighborhood supermarket. And the one selling the grain gets to set the rules. Joseph told them before, if you come back, bring your brother. Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's sons, and he was the full brother to Joseph. You can only imagine the anxiety of Jacob. He already believes he lost his son Joseph. In fact, he's going to ask Judah in verse 6, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? In other words, Judah, why show all of your cards to this king? Judah offers mercy. Judah offers himself. I myself will be surety for Benjamin. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. In chapter 44, Joseph performs an encore. He's already tested his brothers, but this is his final act. As they head home, after coming down to Egypt, getting the grain, Benjamin's with them, things are going smoothly. As they head home, he plants a silver cup in the bag of Benjamin. And Joseph then sends his men out and pulls them over. And they do a search. What do they find in the bag of Benjamin? In verse 14, they came to Joseph's house and fell to the ground before him. Then Judah spoke. Therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and Benjamin is not with us, since his life is bound up in the life of this lad, when he sees that he is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant down into the grave in sorrow. For I became surety for this lad, for Benjamin, to my father, to Jacob, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame. Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of this lad as a slave to you, and let Benjamin go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake him. What's happened to Judah? This is amazing. He's preeminent among all the brothers, offering himself. This is an act of mercy for Benjamin, but also for his father. Uh, Truly, God's been working in this man's life, becoming a beacon of mercy on behalf of God. It gets even better. I have just one more example. Chapter 46, verse 28. Eventually, Jacob and all of these brothers, they're all going to move down to Egypt. And as they close the distance, as they near the land of Egypt, Judah would make first contact. Jacob taps Judah to go out and make contact. Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him. What's the big deal? Judah separated Jacob from Joseph. It was his idea to earn 20 shekels of silver in the sale. Judah separated father from son. Father from favorite son. He now reunites them. What a mercy that God would perform such a thing to bring the life of this man full circle. Judah became an instrument of mercy in the hands of God. You need to know this morning, believer, that God dispenses his mercy through his people. People like you. People like me. In fact, I would argue that God's people know something of his mercy. And we saw it in the progression of our message this morning. It all began with this self-awareness of this need, this this notion that that I have sinned, that I'm a sinner. And that spiritually speaking, I cannot fix myself. I'm in this spiritual free fall. And then Jesus comes along. God offers us a mercy that can save us in the person of Jesus. And it redeems our lives. It, It changes our lives. And now we share God's mercy because we've experienced it and we have something to tell people about. Titus chapter five, verse three. Chapter three, verse five, we receive the gospel in our sin. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now maybe you were working really hard to please God, but God said, no, here's my mercy. Or maybe you were running really hard away from God and God said, no, here's my mercy. But while you were in sin, God gave you mercy. You've received it, you've experienced it. And we then received a transformation in our soul. 2 Peter 2, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, if you're following. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but you have received a mercy. We're fundamentally changed. Who we are, at the core of what we're about, that's transformed. And we receive comfort in our affliction so that we can then be vessels of mercy to others afflicted. Second Corinthians chapter 1, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort has comforted us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. No one can speak to pain like the Christian. No one has experienced the mercy of God in the midst of pain like the Christian. And if we've been attentive and watching and listening and learning to what God teaches us in our pain, we have a mercy to share with others in pain. God, this Father of mercies, makes you a vessel of mercy. It's a mercy to sinners. It's a mercy that saves. And it's a mercy to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you've seen us in our need. You know our distress. You know even the undeserving nature of our souls, but you've stepped in and given us mercy. Father, I pray that would not be lost on us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. I pray that we would be vessels of mercy, that you would change us and transform us and give us spiritual gifts and skills and abilities to be able to to minister to other people. Father, you've been so kind to us. May we be kind to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.